The known world consisted of our garden and the river that ran at its foot. Beyond the river was the other side, but only barbarians dwelt in the savage woods that clothed the far bank, anthropophagi, and men whose heads did grow beneath their shoulders, or, to give them their proper name, the leafy men. The leafy men wore knitting needles through their noses and fruity hats like my Aunt Polly. Our garden itself was exceptionally large for a cottage garden. It boasted little formal order, and vegetables, flowers and herbs dwelt together in a happy confusion, each finding its habitat where it could. Along one side was a wall, and along the wall a border with old cottagey flowers, pinks, lupins, catmint, and in spring the crown imperial. On the other side, old-fashioned roses poured and scrambled and embraced, Empress Josephine, Rosa Mundi, Gloire de Dijon, and lovely, rambling, crimson and dainty white, Lucy Bertram. To me, the garden was a riot of natural forms, of which the reality were known not by names, but by a zen-like pointing straight to the heart of things. It was a strident, clashing, blaring orchestra of shapes and colours and volumes, a symphony fantastique of blazing hues and leaping tendrils and madly dancing lights on cartwheeling leaves. Here was a cosmos of Van Gogh and Hieronymus Bosch, whose stalks shot straight up to the sky, where bean leaves hung huge in the heavens, asters spun dizzy as Catherine wheels, Ribbed and fleshy rhubarb plants were alien life forms from other planets. Hollyhocks climbed the air like radio masts. Teasels and bolted cabbages towered above me in crazy forms, belonging my rights to the Carboniferous and Cretaceous. And the colours of flowers, whose nodding heads rang out their harmonies ceaselessly in tumbling peals, like the bells of the old city of London, fizzed like fireworks. In one corner was a clump of bamboos. This clump of bamboos was several miles wide, and it took three days of determined hacking through its flinging lianas and thickly serried trunks to penetrate to the centre. But at the centre, hidden in secret and far from the profane eyes of the uninitiated grown-ups, who were indeed the very archetype of a laity, was as in a thrillingly secluded magic glade, the heart of the garden. For here was my jungle house, an architectural stoop or mundi, of magnificent elevation, consisting of an old carpet offcut and a bit of corrugated iron. You could lie in the jungle house and hear the exotic cries of the jungle all around. Monkeys and gibbons flung themselves in impossible arcs across ricocheting planes of space in the shallow pools. Crocodiles glided noiselessly, their horrible, barely surfaced eyes bulging with evil, scaled and castellated U-boats of primeval savagery and horror. In the undergrowth, Mrs. Dobbs's parrot swore viciously, I'd seen this parrot on visits to Mrs. Dobbs next door, but was not allowed to converse with it, as its language was appalling. 
He had been the star pupil of Mr. Dobbs, who was a sailor and spent most of his leaves ashore instructing it in the oaths of the sea. How it came to be in these tropical jungles, I cannot say, although it is true that it did once escape its confinement and sat on our garden fence, fiercely crying, Bugger off! as I could not help overhearing, before I was hastily hustled away, while it continued to repel well-intentioned rescuers with diabolical ferocity. The jungle howled and shrieked, It might perhaps be thought that in this jungle, throbbing with danger and packed tight with atavistic sound, I would have been frightened. But this was never so, as I was always accompanied by the dearest brother and true friend of all my adventures, Peter. Peter was our Scotch terrier. Of cheerful disposition and gallant temper, he was the perfect companion for adventures of all kinds. I loved him without reservation. Dost thou take this Scotty to be thy dearly wedded dog? Oh, I do, I do, for always and always, for ever and ever. Happy were the songs we sang as we marched on the unending journeys to foreign lands. Many was the mocking tale or a jibe with which he entertained the long companionable nights spent spinning yarns or planning fresh campaigns around the fire at the jungle house while lynx and wolf prowled the moth-flickering darkness without. But confronted with a Labrador five times his size, insanely courageous as Scotch terriers are, he would leap into the breach, snarling and barking to the skirl of the pipes like Robert the Bruce himself. The greatest of all our adventures was to be that when we would actually cross the river and enter the land of the other side. The great problem that would then face us when we crossed the river, apart from the leafy men who were of unknown temperament and disposition, was that of tigers. There were no tigers, there was pretty well everything else, in the clump of bamboos, but there were tigers in the land of the other side. And I do not mean the boring, matly striped kind of zoos and wildlife programs, but real tigers. Tigers, tigers burning bright in the forests of the mind. These are deep structure tigers, fiery, phylogenetic beasts inherited in the very shapes of the soul from the experiences of the earliest men, which every child knows by an inner light of which the ontogenetic brutes are merely the most superficial corroboration. As far as tables and chairs and other such mundane objects are concerned, our minds may well be a tabula rasa, a blank sheet of paper, 
waiting to be written on, an empty room not yet filled with intellectual furniture by our minding adults. Table, invites the grown-up, pointing to the object and cooing in a crazed, sing-song manner. Table, repeats the child to humour the creature, who will otherwise go on forever, terrified that his or her infant may prove marginally less intelligent than the little girl of the neighbour next door. Say again, table. There is a burst of frantic applause. The maestro, in charge of the master class, with swiftest leap, now deftly changes hats and becomes a wildly cheering audience, escaping momentarily from the tedium of the quotidian round into a fevered certainty that the intellectual future of the human race is assured. Table! It is a rush, a moment of ecstatic release, as at the last night of the proms or scoring the winning goal on cup final day. Untrammeled and unconfined is the acclaim of this evidence of a new linguistic genius, this Chomsky, this Wittgenstein, this Shakespeare come again. Clever boy, table, wee, table. What fools these mortals be. But tigers, the swooping fright of the swallow, spider's webs, hanging etched, trembling in shining mist on still September mornings, the view from Waterloo Bridge, the secret names of these things we have known from the beginning of the world. The first of our problems was that we had no map. There was a map on the ceiling of my bedroom, left by a water stain when the roof leaked, but this map, I suppose I must have known this by a kind of infused knowledge, was a map of Australia. Nevertheless, mapless but intrepid, we did actually begin our journey one day and began to cross the shining, majestic waters of the mighty river. For many days we were becalmed in our paper boat, made and donated in the interests of geographical exploration by my uncle Telford, like a painted ship unmoving on a breathless painted ocean. Then, with no warning at all, the scenario changed and we found ourselves shooting down roaring, foaming rapids. Peter nearly drowned, but I grasped his paw and pulled him to safety. Beyond this, my chronicle of memory does not extend. Did we encounter the tigers and the leafy men? I do not know. I suppose that our epic endeavour may have been interrupted by being made to go to bed Perhaps I was distracted by a passing butterfly or the offer of a boiled sweet. Or perhaps I was overtaken by one of my sudden fits of rage and resentment when the whole world would turn to volcanic fire. My belly would become a poison pit of hissing, writhing serpents and my head would be illumined into dreadful clarity of purpose by fearful intermittent flashes and sheets of lightning. Amid the crashing thunder, I will pick up the world and, roaring with outrage, throw it and all its disgusting, revolting inhabitants far into the depths of the sea, until, exhausted by my fury, I would fall into a deep sleep and then again awaken, as though nothing had happened. However this may have been, to this day, the undiscovered country of the land of the other side remains as unvisited and unknown as Japan was to medieval Europeans, and from its born, even until now, no traveller has ever yet 
return. At the far end of the garden, between the cabbage patch and the river, was an enclosure containing half a dozen soft fruit bushes, and, surrounded by its bushes as Jupiter by his moons, a mighty ancient pear tree. This enclosure was known euphemistically by my mother as the orchard. Perhaps you'll care to take tea with us one day, Mrs Maxwell, in the orchard? In the spring, the tree was an arctic waste of snowy blossoms, in autumn a city of yellow pears. The tree was the first of all trees, and for this reason was the world tree. This was obvious, for to begin with, it was by far the biggest tree in the world, bigger even than the trees in the land of the other side. But there were other, subtler aspects of its globally axial character. It knew everything and held the secrets of life. I knew this because the people who lived in the cottage before we did had told my parents that for centuries the villagers had been telling it things, as in some places they tell the bees when anything happens. As it had already existed through geological stretches of time, it had by this time learnt an awful lot. It was also quite clear to me that the tree was identical with me. In fact, it was me. I held converse with Mr. Grass and Mr. Stone only insofar as I bore a heavy responsibility for their animation. I was not responsible for moving creatures, they had a life of their own, but also only insofar as I was first and foremost at one with the tree. It is not easy to explain this. Peter and I and the tree were one in a mysterious Trinitarian union. It was true the tree could not walk, so it could not accompany Peter and me on our frequent expeditions to the other side of the world, not to be confused with the other side. The other side of the world was a general term, simply meaning a long way. But this was precisely the point. Because the tree did not move, it guaranteed continuity of being. Peter and I knew that we would always be friends because you could always go back to the end of the garden at the end of an expedition, no matter how far, and say, there's the tree. Because it was always there, you knew in a shifting and unstable world where you were. Because we could always go back to it, we knew that we were ourselves. The tree was the source. In consequence of these profound metaphysical attributes, the tree required worship cult. On return, therefore, from the journeys of exploration, we would bring gifts and make a sacrifice of first fruits. 
by placing particular treasures we come across in a gnarled and vaginal orifice low down in the trunk, thoughtfully provided by the tree spirit for just this purpose. A vacated snail shell once, and once a bent rusty safety pin, and on an especially important occasion, when we got as far south as New Zealand, we knew it was New Zealand because we found a tuft of sheep's wool, gift most precious, the broken half of a heavenly blue thrush's egg. <laughs>